Father, we stop to just remind ourselves that although we may not have noticed it moment by moment, you've been preserving us and providing for us through the week, through this day. Thank you for the mercies that you have shown us that we have not noticed. Thank you for the dangers that you have protected us from that we were not aware of, for the temptations that you steered us clear of, for the germs that you made unable to afflict us. Thank you, Father, that as Scripture says, you are the watchman of Israel, that you never sleep, that you're always guarding your people. We're grateful for that. Father, tonight as we turn to your word and your ways, we ask again that you would teach us, that you would preserve unity among us by your Spirit, that you would stretch our thinking, but also strengthen the foundation of our faith. We ask this with much thanks in the name of your Son. Amen. Okay, let's talk about something practical or schedule-oriented before we jump into the material of the course. Um, some of you may have heard, some of you probably have not heard, that Young and I will be going to Hong Kong this fall. We'll just be going for a little over three months to do an experiment teaching there in a school that has all of its instruction in Chinese. And I don't speak Chinese, but there's a portion of the school that's accredited, and the students in that program are college-educated, and all of them have studied English. The school cannot find a qualified teacher in systematic theology who speaks Chinese. So, as an experiment, I'm going to go there and teach for one semester, and we'll see how it works. What that means is that we will not be around this fall, and so that leads to a question about the scheduling of the last two courses for this program that we are doing. Now, there is time to complete those last two courses before we leave, but if we do that, that means that you folks and I have to be here for most of the summer, and I'm not sure that you all want to do that. I'm not going to ask for an immediate answer, but maybe in the next hour after you've had some time to think about it, I'll ask for a show of hands. The time period for the next 10-week session would run from May 20th through July 22nd. I might possibly bump that back a week. Because somewhere in the next three months, I want some time to take a vacation with me young, which I haven't done in probably ten years. Um, so anyway, think about that. All right? If we should decide not to do it, we would probably be able to pick it up and finish it either next, uh, or either during the winter, if we don't go back to Hong Kong for a second three-month term, or after that if we do which would be something like probably April, July, April, I'm sorry, April, May, and June, okay? So it would probably mean, it will mean postponing it for at least six months if we don't do it this time, possibly for a little bit more, okay? So just think about that, and we'll talk about it after we uh, go through our first session here. 
All right. There are notes in the back. For those of you who were here last week, there's nothing new. If you got the notes last week, you've got everything. Okay? And I'm very grateful that you are here. I'm kind of sad that our numbers have dwindled, but you folks seem to be the stalwarts. And I'm very grateful that you're here. All right, we're going to continue talking about the earthly works of Christ. Now, a lot of this is going to be review of things that you already know, but it's helpful to look at these things, okay? Let's think about the lines of evidence that prove that Jesus was the promised Messiah of Israel. You probably picked up in your reading of the Gospels and the book of Acts that there were other people who came along and claimed to be Messiah. The Jews were expecting the Messiah. And if someone wanted to start a movement or gain political power, if he could convince people that he was the Messiah, people would rally behind him. And there were a number of folks in history who did that both before and after Christ. But the Lord presented cert certain convincing evidence of his identity as the Messiah. He was born of the line of David. Now this was not this is asserted in the Gospels, but it's not just asserted in the Gospels. At the time that Christ came, anybody could check his records. They could go down to the temple and they could ask for information and it would be looked up and they could prove what tribe a person was from. Unlike the present day where it's possible to seal the records of your birth. Interesting times we live in. Okay. Angels and men testified to his identity. You know, there was Anna, there was Simeon, there were the kings who came from the east. Now, their testimony was not necessarily infallible. It couldn't be proved that they were right, but angels showed up, and angels are sent by God. And they all said the same thing. They said, this is the one who was to be born in the line of David. Third thing is that the Lord came in fulfillment of many messianic prophecies. Lots of these are mentioned in particular in the Gospel of Matthew, but they're mentioned in, uh, in the other Gospels as well. We don't need to go through the list of, this, of these. I'm sure you're familiar with them. And if you start thinking about this, you put all these lines of evidence together and it becomes virtually impossible for someone to manufacture such evidence. God the Father, through his sovereign control of history and the process of preparing the Old Testament scriptures centuries and centuries in advance, laid out the information so that when Jesus showed up and he fit those predictions, there was no reason for anyone intelligently to deny that he was who he said he was. And yet people did deny it. Why? They didn't want it to be true. It didn't fit their program. People had things at stake. They had their position as rulers of the temple. Um, the Romans obviously didn't want to recognize it. There are a number of reasons why people didn't want to recognize it. Simply recognizing the authority of Messiah was a scary thing because he called people to do things that were difficult, didn't he? 
called them to confess their sins. He called, called them to put aside a style of living that looked good on the outside but was a mess on the inside. Okay, he performed miracles predicted of the Messiah. He healed the lame. He restored the blind. He cleansed lepers. Many, many miracles. And finally, he gave himself for the sins of men as was predicted for Messiah. You know that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where Paul says, I delivered to you that which I also received. And he said that Christ died according to the scriptures and he rose again according to the scriptures. He's referring to the fact that it was predicted in the Old Testament that Christ would die for the sins of men. So his credentials were many. They were essentially unmanufacturable and that's one of the reasons that we have such strong confidence that he is the person that the Old Testament predicted. Now we again are not going through this in any detail in this course but as you study the Gospels what you see is that there are three pivotal events in the ministry of Christ. they are turning points in his ministry and they appear in all of the Gospels. Okay. they're all associated with the growing rejection of him by the leaders. And there's this interesting dynamic where the people are watching what Jesus is doing, they hear his teachings, they see his miracles, they come into touch with his credentials, and the people are saying, could this be the Messiah? And they go to the leaders and they say, could this be the Messiah? And the leaders start out by grumbling and they say, then no, he's not the Messiah, and then they say, kill him. And you can see that in these three crucial events. There's the Sabbath controversy. You see this very clearly in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus and his disciples are plucking heads of grain and eating them. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, and the people say, could this be the Christ? And the Pharisees say, no, this man casts out demons and does miracles by the power of Satan. Then there's the triumphal entry. Now, the, triumphal, the, the term triumphal entry doesn't appear in Scripture. I've always thought that this was the worst. That term isn't there. It's in headings in our Bibles, but the term really isn't there. And it's rather poorly named, isn't it? Was the triumphal entry a triumph? It really wasn't, was it? It was celebrated by a small group of people. But in a sense, it was a failure. In a sense, it was a failure. Because what was the Lord doing? He was presenting himself to the nation formally as the king of Israel. And some of the people said, that's the king, that's the one who comes in the name of the Lord, that is the son of David, Hosanna to the son of David. But the vast majority of the people say, who is this guy? Yeah, riding a donkey. Although you understand that riding a donkey was a kingly symbol, right? It really was. Um, and the leaders come up to him and say, what are you doing? Tell your disciples to shut up. And Jesus says, if they don't speak, the stones will cry out. But it really wasn't 
a triumph, humanly speaking, because the nation did not receive him as their king. Now, that was part of God's plan, and we all know that, and we all understand that. But it's oddly named, I think. And the last pivotal event was obviously his trial and crucifixion. This is where the nation expressed their final rejection and repudiation of him as their Messiah. And you can really see that his earthly ministry takes a turn at each one of these events. It's following this one that Jesus begins to tell his disciples that he's going to the cross. It's following this one that he withdraws and concentrates all of his ministry on the twelve apostles. Okay, and then obviously he goes to the cross, and then for a short time after that, 40 days after that, he spends time preparing them to minister after he ascends to the Father. Any questions about this? Okay. Let's talk about Christ's death. There is a debate as to whether he really died. You know, um, those of us who are old enough to remember, uh, you remember the book called The Passover Plot? Was that in the 60s or 70s? I think I wasn't a believer then. In fact, I was just a kid. But I think the I think the story was that he only swooned, and when they put him in this nice cold tomb, he sort of revived. His disciples stole the body, but he wasn't really dead or something like that. Does anybody remember? Is that basically what it was? Okay. Um, there have been many many attempts to argue that he didn't die, but the evidence is very strong that he did die. His death cry was audible to everybody. There were hundreds of people watching him on the cross. His last breath was witnessed. If you know how a person dies in crucifixion, what kills him? Yeah, asphyxiation, suffocation. Now, people would be watching this person go like this, slowly, for hours and hours and days and days, probably at about the tenth, a tenth of the pace that I'm doing it as he's pushing up so he can gasp and then hanging and holding his breath. And he's just going back and forth, slowly, slowly sawing the holes in his hands and his ankles bigger and bigger. But, you know, there wasn't a lot of bleeding as a result of the nails in the hands and feet. Do you know that? It was actually very slow bleeding. But the last breath of Christ was witnessed. When a person became still on the cross, they would know that that person had died. But there's more evidence. The soldiers verified his dead condition. This was laid out in the sovereignty of God. Christ was crucified on what day? What day of the week was it? Okay. What time would the Jewish Sabbath start? Sunset on Friday. Okay? Now, for bodies to be up on crosses in the public square in Jerusalem during the Sabbath would defile the Sabbath. So the Jews wanted those bodies down, and the Romans understood that. And as it got late in the day, the Jews said, 
you better kill these guys so we can take the bodies down and get the crosses down. And the Roman soldiers broke the legs of the other two guys. And, they, and you understand why they broke their legs, right? Once they break their legs, they can't push up and they can't keep breathing. They come to Jesus and they say he's already dead. Did we talk about this last week? Okay. Well, these Roman soldiers had crucified hundreds, if not thousands, of people. They were experts in this. They knew all the signs of death. And they looked at Jesus and they said, he's dead. But, according to Roman law, if you were in charge of executing someone and you failed to kill that person, guess what happens? You get crucified in their place. So the Roman soldiers don't want to make any mistake. They take a spear and they pierce the side of Jesus. And one of the Gospels says that water and blood came out. We know physiologically today that when a person dies that way, there's a clear fluid that separates in the pleura, pleura the membrane around the lungs. And if you were to pierce someone's side, there would be two streams of liquid that would come out. One would be blood and one would be that clear plural fluid. It's a further evidence that Jesus was dead. And those Roman soldiers were not going to make any mistake because there was too much for them to lose. Fourth evidence is that Pilate allowed his body to be taken and buried. Now, Pilate was also responsible that Jesus be executed. And he wasn't going to allow, to allow any mistake to occur. And finally, when they take the body of Jesus and they take a hundred pounds of spices, that's a whole lot of spices. Imagine going to Sam's Club and getting a hundred pounds of cinnamon. We're talking probably a couple wheelbarrows full. And they wrap his body in a cloth with a hundred pounds of spices. If he wasn't dead by then, he would have suffocated in the spices. Think about it. It's kind of a gruesome thought, isn't it? But the purpose of that was to preserve his body well enough so that it could then be taken out a couple days later and properly prepared for burial. Right? All of these things give us clear proof that Christ was dead. And you know that in one of the Gospels, when it's discovered that the body is missing and the soldiers are scared to death because they're going to be executed, they're bribed and given a large sum of money to say that the disciples came and stole the body. You know why they had to give them a lot of money? Yeah, so, so that if anybody accused them of dereliction of duty, they could get on the next plane out of town. So, all of the evidence is that he really did die. And of course, I've left one thing out, probably the most obvious one. What's the most important thing that you need in order to prove that somebody's dead? The body. And nobody could produce the body. The Romans have had every reason to produce the body, but they couldn't. Okay, now let's talk about his resurrection. Christ's resurrection was predicted, it was carried out, and it was verified. Okay, think about the evidence. The Old Testament predicted his resurrection. Psalm 16, which Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2, predicted that God would not leave his Holy One in the grave. Okay? Psalm 118.22, together with Acts chapter 4, 10 and 11, 
was given as a proof of the resurrection. Let's take a look at that. Let's turn to Acts chapter 4. Peter is addressing the Sanhedrin and he says, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. Now right there is an interesting proof. Peter doesn't have the power to heal a lame man, but somebody had to do it. And Peter says it was done by Christ. That itself is a proof that he's alive, isn't it? But Peter goes on and he says, The stone which was rejected by you builders has become the chief cornerstone. And he's quoting Psalm 118.22. Now the reason I put this up is that I think that what Peter is doing is he's giving us a hint that in that statement in Psalm 118.22, there is kind of a sneak preview of the resurrection. I don't think it was clear until Peter said that, but I do think that's what Peter's argument is. Now, we know the Lord predicted his own resurrection repeatedly, didn't he? Over and over. It didn't really sink into anybody's heads until it actually happened, but he predicted it repeatedly. Okay. The body was missing. Now, this is an interesting one. If you go through and read the gospel accounts of the discovery of Jesus' body being missing, what you will find is that when the stone was rolled away, the body is already gone. And what does that tell us? What does that tell us? The body was not in the tomb when the stone was rolled away. Yeah, either, either the body was not there to start with, or he was in there. Okay, but what, but what it, it tells you a little bit more. I mean, why didn't the angel roll away the body and then Jesus walks out in his resurrected glory? Because that's not what happened, is it? it? Tells you something about the resurrection body, Andrew. Okay, and he was already gone when they broke the seal, right? So what does that tell us? Yeah, and he was able to pass through solid rock, which is an interesting thing, and there's more evidence of that, as we'll see. Now, eyewitnesses saw Jesus in his resurrected, or his glorified state, as we call it, According to Paul in in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, at least 500 people saw him. Nobody seems to have disputed that. And then, many of these people, for decades to come, spent their lives going around telling other people what they had seen, and they suffered and were tortured and they died rather than to renege on the story. And they had nothing to gain. They didn't get rich. They didn't go on healing crusades like, you know, some people are doing today where they make lots and lots of money. These guys weren't driving Mercedes. They were poor and despised except by those who believed the story. Um, 
and I would just add, and I can't prove this, you know, this would t we'd have to do a lot of reading, etc. But there have been many attempts to argue away the resurrection, and they all fail. And there have been many scholars who set out to prove that the accounts in the Gospels and the book of Acts weren't true. And those who study it carefully almost invariably do what? They come to believe it. You know, this is a little bit off topic, but one of the things that's amazing about Scripture is that it doesn't paint a rosy picture. The Bible and the stories that are in it are not favorable toward the participants, except for God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You know, nobody would write the accounts in the Gospels and the book of Acts if they weren't true, they're too embarrassing to the people who were involved. And that's what that's one of the things that's convinced people who have tried to disprove these things, plus the evidence of archaeology and the things that they find on the outside. Okay, now, in this slide and the next slide, we're going to look at some things. These are kind of going to overlap, but I think they're helpful. Chafer... Lewis Ferry Chafer, one of the founders of DTS, gives a list of seven reasons for the resurrection. Okay? Christ rose because death could not hold him. That's what Peter says in Acts chapter 2. Christ rose to fulfill the Davidic covenant. Now, in our next term, we'll talk about the Davidic covenant. But it was necessary for the descendant of David who would one, one day rule on the throne of Israel to live eternally in order to fulfill that covenant. There were two ways that covenant could have been fulfilled, either by an unbroken succession of ancestors, uh, I'm sorry, not ancestors, descendants of David reigning on the throne of Israel, or by the provision of one descendant who would never die. And that's the way God chose to do it. So Christ's resurrection was necessary for that. He rose to become the source of resurrection life. He's the first fruits from the dead. He rose to become the source of resurrection power. You know that prayer in Ephesians chapter 1 where Paul says, Have I told you the story of the demon-possessed man in the Philippines? No, I'll tell you, I'll tell you that story. There's a prayer here um, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. I'm just going to jump into the middle of it. Paul says, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is, what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of, his, of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. During our first term in the Philippines, Myung and I went to a missions conference where I was the main speaker. First conference I'd ever done. I'd never even attended a conference. It was, it was a difficult experience for me because I don't think I was really very well prepared. I had all my messages laid out, but I didn't understand what a conference was. But anyway, that week, which was the week leading up to Good Friday, there was a guy in the conference who was behaving very strangely. 
And during our sessions, he'd be sitting out there and he'd be leering and speaking silently to someone who seemed to be sitting with him. And everybody was spooked by the way this guy was behaving. And his behavior got worse and worse as the week went on. And when Good Friday came, a couple of the pastors of the church and I sat down with him in the afternoon and we said, we got to talk to you. What's going on? And he didn't want to talk, but he finally <clears throat> admitted that he had some demonic experience in his background and had been subject to some kind of ritual abuse or something. We couldn't quite figure out what it was. And as we were interviewing him, all of a sudden, his eyes roll to the ceiling. He's sitting on a bench. His head goes back like this, and he falls over stiff as a board on this bench. His eyes aren't blinking. They're just staying open. His breathing becomes shallow. He becomes totally unresponsive. We slapped him. We yelled at him. We poured water on him. Nothing had any effect on him. And he was in this condition for about 15 minutes, and we're really beginning to panic because we're worried about him, his physical safety, if nothing, is, nothing else. So, you know, there are four or five of us there by that time. We're all praying. Nothing is happening. And something reminded me of this passage. And I opened my Bible, and I read the prayer, and I said, Lord, we don't know what to do with this guy. Would you please exercise on his behalf the same power that you exercised when you raised your son from the dead? And he immediately sat up. His eyes started blinking. He came back to normal consciousness. It's the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. Just, you know, it was quite, quite overwhelming. That guy continued to have problems, by the way, but they were dealt with in the months ahead. But, um, every, you know, when I look at this, that's what I think of. Because it was, it was startling how the Lord answered that prayer. I have not seen many things like that. That's the first time I've ever seen anything like that. Okay. Christ was raised to be head in all things over the church. His presence in heaven... And his resurrected state is necessary for that role. Otherwise, we would be a headless body. And that would not be a good way to be. He was raised on account of or to testify to justification. That, excuse me, that last verse in Romans chapter 4 speaks of this. And we'll, we'll see this again in the next batch of reasons. And he rose to be the first fruits of the dead. Now, this next one is a little redundant, but let's go through it quickly anyway. Okay, the resurrection of Christ proves the truth of all that he taught. Now, what were the charges when Christ was executed? What were the charges made against him? Okay, he claimed to be king of the Jews, which was sedition, right? Because the Romans were the kings over the Jews. At least they said it was sedition. And the other charge was... Right, he claimed to be God. That's blasphemy. The two charges against him were sedition and blasphemy. And in a sense, those charges were correct. Because he did claim to be the king of the Jews, and he did claim to be God. However, when they convicted him, he wasn't wrong, they were wrong, because what he said was true. Okay? 
Now, when Christ rose from the dead, he had predicted, go ahead and kill me, and after three days I will rise from the dead. Nobody has the power to be raised from the dead except, or nobody has the power to raise anybody from the dead except God. Would God validate the word of a liar? No way. So the very fact that he rose from the dead is evidence that what he taught was true. And not just the thing about being the rightful king of Israel and being the son of God, but I think it validates everything that he said was true. So it's a very important thing in that sense. It verifies his deity. If you turn to Romans chapter 1, in the first few verses, there's an interesting statement there. Paul says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, called to, I'm sorry, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. His resurrection was actually a declaration by God the Father that his Son was who he said he was, the divine Son of God. Okay, here's an interesting one, and, and we hit this before, but let's, let's look at it again. Look at the very last verse of Romans chapter 4, verse 25. This is a verse that may have driven you nuts. It still drives people nuts. It says that he was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Now, what's frustrating about this verse is that the becauses work differently. Okay? When it says he was delivered up because of our offenses, it's saying it was necessary for him to die because we were sinners. But when it says he was raised because of our justification, it's saying that him being raised proves our justification, not our justification causes him to be raised. It's sort of flipped. You've got kind of a symmetry instead of a parallelism. Okay, but I think what it's saying is clear, even though it's grammatically odd. The fact that Christ was raised is evidence that the Father accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. That's how we know that we have been justified by what he did. Okay, number four. His resurrection guarantees the truth of the gospel message. Remember in Romans chapter 15, Paul says, If Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is vain and you are still in your sins. But he has been raised from the dead. Okay, now here's a pretty broad one. His resurrection opens the way for his future ministries. What are his future ministries? from the perspective of the cross going forward in time okay he's judge he'll be judge of the dead the living and the dead he's king how about right now head of the church what else high priest in heaven 
Okay, giver of gifts. He will be Messiah. Okay, he will be the ruler over all the nations of the earth. Um, all of those things could only be performed if he rose from the dead. If he was still rotting in the grave, obviously he wouldn't be doing anything else. And finally, I think this is the last one, yes. His resurrection reveals the nature of our resurrection bodies. Now, that takes us to the next one. This is kind of fun. In his resurrection body, Christ was able to eat. I think we've looked at some of those already. He was truly physical. <clears throat> People could wrap their arms around him. They could hug him. They could kiss his feet. He was recognizable. He apparently wasn't always recognizable, but at times he was recognizable. He was able to breathe. Yeah, when he chose to be recognizable. And that, of course, leaves open interesting questions. Will we be able to do that? No? I don't know. In John 20, 22, Jesus breathes on the disciples and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, we'll talk about the significance of that event in our next set of classes. He was not confined by matter. We knew that he came out of the tomb before the stone was rolled away. And in Luke chapter 24, there are two incidences. Incidences? Incidents? Yes, incidents. Where the apostles are in a locked room... And suddenly, Jesus is there. And he didn't break the window, and he didn't pick the lock. And he didn't come down through tiles in the ceiling. He just suddenly was there. You know, and I don't think he has a Star Trek transporter. He just has some ability to move instantaneously from one place to another. Which, again, raises interesting thoughts about our resurrection bodies. Wouldn't I like to have that now? jet lag, all that stuff. Okay. He apparently was able to disappear. He's with the disciples. He meets on the road to Emmaus, and all of a sudden, poof, he's gone. How did he do that? I have no idea. And he is immortal. We know that that's stated in both 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Okay. Any questions on this stuff? Again, I know this is a review of things that you already know, but it's helpful to sort of put it all together and see how this evidence builds up. All right, let's talk about Christ's ascension. There are two key passages on his ascension, and they're both written by Luke. Luke 24, and he led them as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Now Acts chapter 1 was also written by Luke. There Luke says, Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight and while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken from you up into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now, 
Here's a question for you. How do we reconcile these two different descriptions, both written by the same person of the ascension of Christ? Do you notice? They do look different. They aren't necessarily different, but they do seem to be different. Now, if you would look at the context in Luke 24, just reading it, you get the impression that this happened on Resurrection Sunday, the day he was discovered not to be in the tomb. We know from Luke, I'm sorry, from Acts chapter 1, that this one was 40 days after he rose from the dead. And the question is, what do you do with this? Well, there are basically two approaches that have been taken to make sense of the data that we've got. Okay, the first approach is to say that both of them describe the same event. And Luke 24 just skips over those 40 days, and it's a description of the same thing that the disciples saw in Acts chapter 1. Okay? That's workable. That's workable. However, there's another approach that seems to help make more sense of some of the details that we haven't mentioned so far. I don't know whether you've heard this before. The other view says that Luke 24 describes an initial ascension on Resurrection Day, and Acts chapter 1 describes a final ascension 40 days later. The argument is that Christ remained resident in heaven between the two ascensions and traveled back and forth to the earth. You ever heard this? None of you, right? You've heard it, Glenn. Yeah. This is not heretical, by the way, but it's surprising. Okay, now let's look at just a little bit of the evidence on it. I go into this in some detail into your notes. Oh, wait a minute. Let me go back. Um, turn to John chapter 20, verse 17. We're just going to hit this quickly. In John 20:17, Jesus says to Mary, Don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, and to my God and to your God. Now flip back to Luke chapter 24, verses 38 to 40, and what does Jesus say there? He says, Behold my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you will see that I have. Now in John, he says, Don't touch me, for I haven't ascended to the Father. In Luke, he says, Go ahead and touch me. Now, what has been suggested is that between those two, two moments, both of them on Resurrection Sunday... Christ ascended to the Father and then came back. It's kind of a wild idea, isn't it? But there is further evidence of that, and you can read about that in the notes. I'm not going to go into it any further, but you can read about it. Okay? You don't have to accept this view, but it's an interesting thing to think about. Okay? Now let me just say one last thing. We know that after Christ ascended to heaven, as is recorded in Acts chapter 1, he won't 
come again until the future second coming because in Acts chapter 4 in Peter's speech Peter says this he says repent therefore and be converted this is Acts chapter 4 verse 19 that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before and this is the key whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things. Okay? Once Christ left, as recorded in Acts chapter 1, we know that he's not making any trips back to earth. It says that he must stay in heaven until the time of restoration of all things. And the time of restoration of all things is what? It's the second coming and the millennium. Okay? So... If you take this view, don't get into the mistaken idea that Christ is traveling back and forth be between heaven and here on a regular basis. That's not what the people who hold this view are saying, and in fact, that doesn't fit the evidence of Scripture. Touchdown. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's exactly right. Okay. If you look in Acts chapter 1... What do we see? We see that Jesus was standing on the earth and he was lifted up and he went into heaven. He goes up through the clouds and the angels say he will come back in the same way. And if you go back to Zechariah chapter 14, it says that when he comes down, he will touch down on the Mount of Olives. So, yes, as, as we think about the rapture, and if you believe as I do that the rapture happens seven years before the second coming, it's best to view the rapture as Christ coming down to rescue his people from the earth, but we know that he doesn't touch down at that time. Now, you, you can either say that that's not the second coming because he doesn't touch down, or you can say, and there's some sense to this, that in a sense, everything from the rapture to his actual second coming is part of his return. You know, and the analogy for this, and I like this a lot, is that when the U.S. attacked Iraq, attacked Baghdad in, what was it, 1992? 91? Okay. What did we do? We got all, all of the Americans out of there before we started bombing the city. Then we bombed the heck out of the city, and then the troops went in. Now, you can sort of picture the rapture as something like that. Christ saves his people off of the earth, and then for seven years he's sending judgments down from heaven, softening up the enemy territory, and then he invades personally and with the armies of heaven at the second coming. There's kind of an analogy there. Did you have a question, Andrew? Okay. All right, let's see. Let me see how many more slides I have. We never quite finish. Okay, the only thing that I've got left is a discussion of Christ's descent into Hades. Did we talk about that in here at all? I think we did a little bit, didn't we? I think we did. So what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to let you read that in the notes. Let's take a break and resume at 10 minutes till 8.